Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the podcast, we have an awesome guest joining us. I have been watching uh, Tony Martinetti and the way he has been building up and really putting on my radar planned giving, something that I can't wait to dive into. Tony Martinetti, the planned giving evangelist, also host, founder of the amazing nonprofit radio podcast. It's great to have you on. How is it going? I'm doing great, George. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. So, yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a proud it honor to be on a podcast. It's an honor and a privilege to be on yours. Yes. I want to start off by asking the question, what is a planned giving evangelist? The planned giving evangelist uh, is the guy who, should I should I be uh, Trumpy and, and uh, talk about myself in third person? And uh, he's the guy who, no, I, 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 uh, Without any religious overtones around evangelism, I think every nonprofit that's more than five years old should have a planned giving program. And as you've been following me graciously on LinkedIn, you know that it doesn't have to be complicated. I keep it simple. We talk about wills. Every nonprofit more than five years old, well, okay, that has individual donors should be doing planned giving. So I I added a couple of qualifications. But yeah, I evangelize for planned giving. It's so interesting. And I, I like it's frankly, it's really morbid. People don't like talking about death and people really don't like talking about their own deaths. So I have to ask, what brought you to this realization? And not just realization, but I, I hear the excitement and saying like, wake up everybody. There's, you know, there's something you're not doing. There's an opportunity to connect with donors in this way. How, how did you get to this? this particular spot? Well, the short answer is uh, I hated practicing law, but I'll, I'll come back to how I got into it. But I have, to, uh, I have to debunk one of the many myths of planned giving, that it is a, a death conversation. It is not. It is not a conversation about death. It's a conversation about life, the long-term life of your nonprofit. That's what you're talking about. That's what all your messaging is around, whether it's a face-to-face meeting or a phone call or an event with 500 people, or it's a, an email campaign, or it's a print piece. It's about the life of your nonprofit. And then, so how did I get into it? Uh, yeah, so I hated practicing law. Uh, very glad to have been a lawyer. Uh, well, very glad to have gone to law school, put it that way. I love law school, loved it. Uh, I still encourage folks to go, but did not like practicing law. So I only did it for two years in New York City, and I re-engineered myself as a um, planned giving fundraiser. Because there's there's some, well, I don't want to scare people away. There, having a law degree helps in planned giving, but it is not essential. No, don't get dissuaded from planned giving because you're not a lawyer. There are phenomenally successful folks doing planned giving, either consulting or or as direct frontline fundraisers, they don't have a stitch of law knowledge or law, law background. So, uh, but that's how I got into it initially. 
because I had the law background and I thought it would be helpful to me. And it is helpful, but it's not essential. And also there is a bit of a learning curve, just to be clear. And that's why you have that accelerator that you're saying like, look, here are the steps of figuring out the elements that need to be in place um, from probably a communications and other standpoint for rolling out a program. Uh, but I, I, I'm going to dig deeper on this. I'm going to pull this thread a little bit more. I hear you. I was a lawyer. I was like, yeah, that's not for me. There are a lot of different ways to fundraise. And why, what about the plan giving element just like hooked you? The company of older Americans, mm. folks in their 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s. I'm, I'm working now with a woman who's 98 years old. We're planning a lunch in a few months. I love the company of older folks. I, I don't, it may come from uh, my grandparents, who I used to spend lots of time with. I just love the company of older folks. You know, we're talking about people who lived through the Great Depression, World War One, World War Two, etc. Uh, lots of Vietnam veterans. These folks have stories. They have stories, and they have missions that they love. And you can bring that all together. You can learn from these folks, and you can help them to support these missions that they love. Um, yeah, I, I, I'd say it was the, the company of older folks. I love it. Uh, that connects. That connects for me because I think you need that lens of saying there's, a, you know, not to put it in weird terms, but an underserved market, uh, a market of, of folks that aren't necessarily getting the types of conversations, types of support and opportunities, right? Because we're talking about an opportunity to you know, like you mentioned, uh, it's about life and it's about sometimes I've heard the word legacy uh, and continuing that. And I'm maybe really curious about what does the conversation look like? Because uh, I will come back to the fact that it's awkward to talk about death. So let me just start with that. Like, how do you make it and how do you talk to a nonprofit who's sitting and listening to this? There's a fundraising a CEO being like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to talk to my audience about like, hey, when you die, can I get some money in the middle of a pandemic? Get in that headspace. What is your response to that, that, that thought? All right. Well, let's first, let's start with the myth that, that, we, that I debunked. It is not a death conversation. So for that hypothetical CEO, chief fundraiser, you're not, to, hear me, hear me. I'm going to make a dramatic pause. You are not talking to people about their deaths. You are talking to people. I bookended it with a dramatic pause. I can't be any more, I can't be any more emphatic on a podcast. If we, if we were going to do the video, I'd wave my hands. Uh, you're talking to folks about the sustainability of your work, your mission, your values, and how the ultimate gift that this person can make is going to ensure the sustainability of your work, your mission, and your values. What will this community look like? However, you, however your organization defines community, it could be a town, a county, a state, a province. It could be the earth. However you define community, what would the community look like if our work stopped in 10 years? 
in 15 years, in 20 years. Imagine our community without our programs, without our work. The gift that you're talking to folks about is intended to stave off that ugly future where your work ceases. That's what you're talking about. Sustainability, life, the life of your nonprofit, the long-term life of your nonprofit. It's critical, right? It's critical to your community. If you don't believe that, then you ought not be talking to folks about giving. You, you maybe should be doing accounting or bookkeeping for your nonprofit. If you, but if you do, which I presume you do, believe in the sustainability of your mission, then planned giving fits hand in glove. And you, George, you had said earlier, there's certain things that have to be in place. And, you know, I, I do as much teaching as I can, helping folks uh, in webinars and podcasts and, you know, blog posts, et cetera. But yeah, the accelerator pulls it all together. That's where I teach folks, you know, step by step, how to identify the right prospects, how to solicit those prospects, how to talk to your board, what to do in your marketing, you know, so that's, that's where I pull it together. Uh, all those pieces that you were you you alluded to before. Yeah, because it's not just the generic donate page or here is the like opportunity to work on this. It's a it's a more nuanced conversation as I'm hearing. It's more catered to the person you're talking to because it's going to end up being a a sizable gift and I think I've seen you throw around the average number of $35,000. Yes, that's the average charitable bequest gift in someone's will. The average gift to a charity in a will is $35,000. Now, I've been doing this since 1997, planned giving. So, you know, I've seen ones much smaller. The smallest gift in a will I've ever seen is $1,000. But, you know, that's an outlier on the low end. And of course, there are outliers on the high end. I've seen two and a half million dollar gifts in, in wills. But yeah, the I, mean, average, I know entire organizations being run by a bequest. So yes, you know they you, they can get up there. Obviously, you do. You you know some. Yeah, yeah. The Poetry Foundation actually. Okay, I'm not surprised. Yes, gifts and wills can be enormously lucrative. I mean, that average thirty five thousand. That's more than ten times the average annual giving for non high net worth families, which is around twenty. It's around twenty three or twenty five hundred dollars per year. Yeah. Is, so we're talking about a, a, a multiple of more than 10 in, a, yeah. in a, a gift in someone's will. And then, of course, there are other types of planned gifts, too. You know, life insurance, trusts, charitable gift annuities, real estate type gifts, you know, uh, the remainder trusts, the lead trusts. But I don't like to complicate planned giving. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. As the evangelist, I want to get programs started. And the place to start is bequests. And going from sort of zero to one, what are some of the initial tactics that someone should start with? You know, you don't have any history of plan giving. Is it like get a website page up? Like, is it have some communications put together? What, where does step one happen? It starts with identifying the right folks that you're going to talk to. You want to be talking to your committed, loyal donors, those most committed folks. Those are your best prospects for a planned gift. Uh, And then you start soliciting them with the messaging that I was talking about. 
Um, I, as I recall, I dramatically uh, bookended that messaging with a pause on either side. So I'm sure that folks got it this time. Um, then, you know, then you talk to your board, you know, it's a new initiative. You want board support, right? I like to see hundred percent of board members uh, have the organization in their will at a minimum. Whoa, that's yeah. an interesting piece. Whoa. Yeah, sure. You want the board on board. Yes, absolutely. Wow. Well, that really perked you up. What, what is it about the board that uh, intrigues you like that? I have sat on, I've sat on a board or two. Uh, and, you know, I struggled enough with trying to get 100% giving, as pathetic as that sounds. I no, struggled, I know. It's, but you got to get 100% giving. I know the reality. I just, I'm just laughing because I was the chairman of the board um, at, at a nonprofit. And if you wanted to dig it up, you could find it pretty quickly. And I'm just laughing to myself, thinking about in addition to trying to get someone to like make their gift for the annual year to then be hustling them on like, and like, let me see the will. <laughs> All right. You got to be in the will. We're not hustling. We're not hustling. We're, we're talking to folks about the long-term. Hustling for good. Long. Hold on. It's not about death. It's We've about life. It three times. It's, it's about, about life. life. That's number four. All right. It's about life. All right. So, all right. There's five. I'll stop for now for this, for this five minute block. Um, yeah. You know, no, it's it, the organization belongs in every board member's will. Yep. That's the goal. I realize the reality, same as trying to get hundred percent participation, just in outright giving. I understand the realities. I'm not, you know, I've been doing this 24 years, so I'm not naive about the lift that that might be for some organizations, but that is the goal. I love that as a goal. I think it'd be fascinating as a, as a stat, what percent of your board members are giving in their will. I, um, yeah, well, and it's, it's more than fascinating internally. It's, it's great promotion material uh, for your potential donors. You can say that 95 or 100 percent of the board has us in their will. Look, the board is the insiders. They know. They see the balance sheet every quarter. They know how we're doing. They're the folks who know most what the value of our programs are. So they know our financials. They know the impact of our work. And those folks, those most committed insiders, have included us in their wills. That's yeah, I can see how that would be pretty uh, helpful, and especially yeah. going to, to outside communities. Yeah. I am wondering so many things here. We won't have time to, to wander down every single path, but getting into it, I imagine, so I'm sitting in the communications fundraising department and I'm having these conversations. How do I know it's working, right? Because the cycle time on the moment of this conversation and the eventual gift is far apart, right? There's there's a good amount of time from these conversations and these nurturing pieces to the eventual passing on of, of a uh, future donor. How do you reconcile that? And what are the near-term measures I'm looking for if, if my program's actually doing well? Yeah, well, I consider folks to be donors at the time that they tell us that they've included us in their wills. So, I like to see a recognition society because these folks are donors. Yes, the gift of cash isn't going to come until the donor's death. No question about that. And for a 60 or 70 year old, that could be 30 years 
right? I realize that. Of course, this is long-term fundraising. But yeah, it's about the long-term survivability of your nonprofit. So it is long-term fundraising. Absolutely. I should hope that your board and your CEO have a long-term view of the organization. You're not only fundraising for keeping the lights on and the rent paid. There is, there's got to be a long-term view of the organization. Well, how are we going to fund that long-term view? Planned giving, endowment growth, which planned giving is ideal for. So some measures that we're looking for uh, among these, this new cadre of donors, folks will tell you, you know, as you're asking, folks will tell you, if you've been around for a while, folks may already have you in their wills, but you've never asked them to reveal it. So in all your promotional messages, there's always a checkoff, whether it's print or digital. I have included the Poetry Foundation in my will or other estate plan. You got to give folks an opportunity to self-select and say, yeah, I've already done it. So you might be already in some wills. And then you'll learn more as you, as you are out asking folks to do this. You always are offering them the opportunity to say that they'd like more information. And then there's a follow-up meeting or phone call, hopefully, or you just continue the promotional cycle with them. And eventually they'll tell you the ones who have done it. Well, let me be more precise. Eventually, some folks will tell you that they've done it. The national statistic is that for every, every person who tells you they've included you in their will, there's another seven to eight. So many times over hmm. that have included you and they won't tell you. It's just so private and so personal for some yeah. folks that they're not going to share it. Even though you're a part of their plan, they're not going to share that with you. But you still give folks lots of opportunity to reveal that they have and they become donors immediately. I consider they are donors. You welcome them to your recognition society. So you're going to learn about gifts that way uh, in those ways that I just described. Other measures, you know, you're a data-driven person. Uh, other measures, just number of meetings, number of solicitations, yeah. number of checks that come, checkoffs that come back that don't say that I have included. I mean, that's a that's a home run. I have included. Somebody checks a box that says I'd like more information. I would attend an event on this subject in my local area, right? So you get these checkoffs returning. Those folks are self-identifying as having an interest in planned gifts. Those are, those are singles, doubles, and triples leading up to your home run. So there's some measures. Yeah, there are, there are metrics available in your first year and 18 months. Absolutely. So that leads to another question, which is, is it sort of out of bounds to ask for living donations, like donations while they're alive, if they've already agreed to put you in their will, do you suddenly like remove them from any like, oh, here's our campaign for X? No, absolutely not. The, there's research by um, Professor Russell James at Texas Tech University. He has studied this quantitatively. So you don't have to go by Tony Martinetti, uh, you know, anecdotes times 24 years. Uh, well, you know, what does he know? He's only the evangelist. But you don't have to go by my anecdotes. Professor James has studied this. It's very common for folks who have included you in their will to then increase, increase their other types of giving. Why is that? Because they feel so much closer to you now. They've put you mm. alongside their mm. husband, their wife, their children, their grandchildren in their wills. That's an exalted place for your nonprofit to be. 
They love your work that much. They put you alongside their spouse. So they feel that much closer. It's very, very common for folks to increase their other types of giving. So no, you definitely do not stop other types of solicitations. You have immediate needs and you have long-term needs. And you're asking your donors who are appropriate to help fund both. People who are younger, like under 55 or 60, you know, then your asks are about the, the more current needs. I like to start plan giving promotion marketing around 55 or 60. So for those folks and older, mm. the asks come, the asks come in two ways. Sometimes, sometimes, George, it could even come in the same conversation. If you're in the midst of a campaign, you might ask someone for an outright gift. Maybe it's paid out over several years, and also a gift in their will. This week's sponsor, none other than Whole Whale, a digital agency helping social impact organizations build traffic and measure impact. However, they also have an amazing new tool, the Inclusivity Crawler, the inclusivity tool that helps you find language that may be offensive to some of your stakeholders and shareholders. It looks through issues of ethnicity, race, gender, health, wealth, religion, and a number of other isms, frankly, that maybe you didn't have in mind when you wrote that content last year, last two years, a decade ago. The inclusivity tool will go through a page or even your entire website if you need it and help you find language and replace that language with the kinds of words that will be welcoming. Inclusivitytool.com. Again, that's inclusivitytool.com. Now back to our show. Yeah, that's interesting. I was gonna. I had a question about sort of the audience and like when do you start? And you're like, yeah, fifty five. Yeah, fifty five to sixty and over. Yep. Those. <laughs> that's and your and those loyal, committed donors. Those are your best plan giving prospects. That makes it makes a lot of sense. It's you know it's kind of also a sort of not a you know you started by saying like you've been around been around at least five years. Right. And so the the yeah. thing there, it's like saying, like, do you have the staying power? Like if you're a one year startup nonprofit, like this is not for you. It seems like because who knows what you will have become and pivoted to in 30 years. And so even five feels kind of young to me in terms of being able to imbue that type of confidence in, you know, will this group be around in 30 years? Yeah, you're right. That's why I look for five years. Yeah, five is young, but. I, I, I think there's enough longevity, there's enough history and sustainability for folks to, uh, for the right folks, talking to the right prospects, to, to include you in their wills at, at, for organizations that are five years old. Beneath that or earlier than that, it, it's too soon. You know, uh, there's, a lots of, there's lots of passion and, and hopes, but I like to see at least the five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes complete sense. I, you know, I'd probably put it in over under 10 years, right. Knowing like, you know, the Lindy effect on organizations that have made it that long and are still surviving are probably going to continue to survive. Right. But the, but the, the number stands, right. Because as you mentioned, it's, it's in the future. And the funny thing is like the person asking for the gift won't even probably be at the organization when the gift comes through. And, you know, sort of, sort of those measures comes back to like, how do you know you're doing a good job? Like you could have you know, a very effective planned giving uh, person on your staff and they raise $0 over 
five years and you're like, Hey, I think I did a good job. And they won't know for quite some time. It's just kind of interesting. Well, right. You won't have the dollars in, but you'll have the commitments. You will have built, you will have built that recognition society in the first five years. You know, maybe that organization has 50 or 60 people in their recognition society. There are 50 or 60 gifts coming in the future. I'd say that gift officer did quite well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what is well? What is, yeah, what? So I hire my planned gift, um, you know, manager, uh, fundraiser. What is their target for? And you, you, I love this. You're specifically calling out recognition society, right? There is a group that we can identify, which will hopefully encourage people to raise their hands and allow you to celebrate them in the way that they feel is appropriate. But what is a good target for number of members in the recognition society per year, would you say? Yeah, that's a tough one, George. It, it, it varies wildly. Um, you, now, the organization does not have to hire someone devoted to planned giving. I mean, that's, what, that, that, that's a, 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 a premise of my planned giving accelerator. I'm not talking to folks who are devoted to planned giving in planned giving accelerator. I'm talking to CEOs, um, vice presidents. In a couple of cases, there's there are other types of giving. They're, they're responsible for grants, but also they're going to take on the planned giving initiative. Um, I've got a couple of board members, volunteers who are members of planned giving accelerator. So you don't, and especially in the beginning years, you can't have someone devoted to planned giving. There's not enough activity. But there's someone who can do the do the work of planned giving, but they're they're not 100 devoted to it. Maybe it's only 15 or 20 percent of their time actually. So it's not a full time devoted person in the early years. And in it, and it, I want to follow that up quickly. It never ever has to be. Planned giving does not have to does not necessitate someone devoted to it mm-hmm. as a full time employee ever even 15 or 20 years out, you could still be promoting bequests. Uh, Your program is growing and you might get to the point where you want a a full-time director of planned giving, but that's not essential. That's not essential, even in the out years. All right. So you're asking about the measure. Yeah. How many gifts, you know, that's going to depend how many prospects you have. So I'll I'll Mm -hmm. put some numbers on it for you. You're again, data-driven. You're going to hold my feet to the fire. Um, Let's say you have 200 prospects, all right? Mm-hmm. We're in- 200 people over the age of 55 that have previously given to the nonprofit. Yeah, they're good, loyal, okay. consistent donors. Okay. You have 200 of those folks. Let's see, in year one, give me a full 12 months, okay? Give me a full 12 months with these folks. Done, 12 months. 200, I'd say half a dozen gifts. Half a dozen commitments or half a dozen recognition yep. society. Yeah. Year one, half a dozen new recognition society members. Yeah. Uh, year two. So now, now let's say let's uh, now we've got 194. Let's say we got that we reach our half a dozen. So now we've got 194 prospects. Now in an average, you know, typical nonprofit, of course, you're going to keep replenishing your your pipeline. New donors come in. New new folks be, meet your long term criteria, but. Let's just stick with 194. So now in year two, you know, I'd expect to see 15 or so total, total, plus, mm-hmm. you know, the six, plus another, I'd say maybe even more, you know, 15 to 20 added in the 
or, or 15 to 20 total by the end of year two. Yeah. But you've also got yeah. a lot of other activity. You know, you've been sending out promotional pieces. You've been having meetings with folks who haven't made commitments, but you're building the groundwork, right? You're planting seeds. You're mentioning it at events. You're putting it in sidebars yeah. in your yeah. newsletters. You're planting seeds and you're continuing to send out pieces that say, check the box if you've included us already. So you're building that groundwork. That's what I think that's reasonable. So, so what did I say? So that's 20 after two years. So that's 10% of your prospect pool after two years. I think I'd say that's, that's about right. You know, obviously might be a little less, might be a little more, but yeah. 10% of your prospect pool in, in two years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate you sort of bumping the numbers around. Yeah. Two and, years of, and- that's two years of, you know, sustained activity. That's not year one, we made an ask. And now we're sitting back and waiting for 20 folks to jump in by the end of year two. This is sustained promotional activity, right? You're, you're having meetings, you're talking to folks, you're doing your yeah. digital and your print marketing, et cetera. All, all the things I just mentioned, you're talking about it at events, et cetera. So, yeah. yeah. So about roughly uh, over under 3% is the game you may want to start off with as a target. Yeah. From, from the numbers you get. Year uh, one. Yeah. Year one. Yeah. Yeah, but obviously you're always building to it and it gives you a sort of uh, a next step. And I uh, I hear you also on the identity alignment that happens when somebody puts a nonprofit on the same line as a family member. Um, yeah. It makes you think differently about it and leverages the identity alignment that then happens. I'm wondering if you know the average number of nonprofits of people that give one bequest. What is the average? Is it that like there's just one book bequest, there's just one nonprofit per you know will, or is there actually if people have one, they're more likely to have multiple? Oh, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I've seen wills with scores of nonprofits. I'm not exaggerating. 50, 60 nonprofits. I've seen it. Mm-hmm. They each get a, a a tenth of a percent or a well, yeah. not, not that doesn't have to be that small, but because that would allow that would allow a thousand. Um, but you know, varying percentages of, of the residual of uh, estate, what's left after expenses are paid and after, you know, uh, specific dollar amounts are paid, you know, $35,000 to this charity, $100,000 to my niece, et cetera. My, my children get this after those outright bequests are paid and all the expenses of death are paid. What's left is called the residual estate. And I've seen that residual divided. I'm I'm telling you by scores of charities. Oh, so it's just like a pool. It's like a pool of charities in there that like. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A single charity is rare, rare. And I've seen thousands of wills over 24 years. Uh, One single charity in a will is, is quite rare. Okay. Is rare. Okay. So it happens less than 10% of the time. Oh, I'd say far less than 10. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very, very common to see multiple charities, not always scores, but multiple charities. Which is a helpful reminder here that it's, you know, it it's normal that people are thinking about this. They are creating that list. And by asking and repeating the ask and reminding and celebrating the folks that have had that commitment, it can snowball even in terms of that expectation, hopefully. I really like, I mean, you had a comment on that? Can I amplify something that you just said? I'll amplify a lot. May I? Okay. Um, you, you mentioned earlier on talking about uh, 
planned giving. I'm not going to use the D word because we know it's not about the D word. Uh, talking about planned giving in the pandemic. In the pandemic. I did. Uh, there was a uh, March and Lundy study from November of last year. So November 2020 showed 64% of nonprofits said there was an increased interest in planned giving among their donors. Folks mm. were thinking in the, in the midst of the pandemic, folks were thinking about their own longevity. And that led them to have greater interest in planned giving potential uh, than, than the year before. So uh, now certainly in the first like six months or so, five, six months of the pandemic, that, that was not an appropriate time. Everybody was just, you know, hair on fire. We didn't know what to expect. But as things rolled out, you know, we got in through July, August of 2020. Uh, our clients and were when the nonprofits that I work with, you know, started talking about planned giving again. It became appropriate again. We have those long-term needs. We can't we can't suppress them. They they exist. And donors were receptive. We didn't get a single you know, this is inappropriate, you're gross, you know, you're ghoulish, nothing like that, nothing. And I didn't expect it. Um, so the pandemic raised consciousness about long-term planning and the possibility of including nonprofits in those long-term plans. And that Martin Lundy study bore that out. That's an awesome sort of addition to the, the sort of COVID question because we're living under this, you know, terrible umbrella it seems to have a dampening effect on so many things, but what you're actually showing us is that it is brought to light, brought to surface, um, not the D word, but the planning word and how my life and legacy should be remembered. I get a point to that. One light note on Absolutely. That. I gave you a point. Um, you didn't have to say it. Yeah. I'm excited about this because in a macro perspective, I like to see kind of like where the puck is going based on population trends in this case. And we're entering into the largest wealth transfer in, in history, um, certainly in this country, as boomers uh, move on to the next phase of existence. Uh, this is the largest wealth transfer, and there's a lot of planning going on, and there's a lot of money moving around. And I think it's, it's interesting. Do you think we're in a place where it's going to be normalized that, you know, call it over 50% might be adding bequests um, as we have a larger worldview of where things are going, nonprofits' role in the world, you know, social issues are much more top of mind. Is it your sense that this is becoming the norm? And, and what what is your sort of response to that? Nonprofits have an obligation to raise this with their potential donors. So, yes, I hope to see expansion sort of on the on the demand side. You, know, you think of if you think of donors as the supply side, mm. nonprofits as the demand side of planned gifts. I want to see increased in in demand. I mean, the needs are there. I want to see nonprofits taking the initiative, being proactive about planned giving. And yes, that will lead to expansion of the number of folks who do include charities in their wills. I think nonprofits have an obligation to their sustainability. To be promoting this, and I, I, as I said, I think those promotions will that will lead to more folks doing it. What percent of folks actually, you know, of of people with wills, what percent of them have bequests in them? 
it's not large. Uh, charitable, you mean charitable bequests? Yeah. Sorry, I, charitable I, bequests. Thank right, you. right. We're talking specifically charitable bequests, right? Um, I don't know, George. Uh, I, I, I'd I've bet seen it. under 10%. I've seen it. No, I was thinking it's more like 15 or something. Yeah. You know, that vicinity. I mean, you're not far off. I don't, I don't mean to quibble with you over 5%. Um, <laughs> <I'm not laughs> I'll give you your five. You know, Let's not quibble over who killed who. Who <laughs> Uh, it's not as high as the like this, as I'd like to see it as the evangelist. Yeah. So there's that that's, there's there opportunity are, there. I think there's just there's so enormous much opportunity upside. Here. Yes, there's an there's enormous so potential much alpha here. Yes, enormous potential. You're right. You're absolutely right. You know, and you see movements like Giving Tuesday, Getting Wind, and getting incredible amounts of donations on on a single day of action. What is your feeling about like? Is there I know that we were just wrapping up. I think August was the National Make a Will Month. Is that like a something you're trying to put energy behind? Like, where's the where's the moment people can push behind? Thank you for seeing my LinkedIn posts on uh, August <laughs> being National Make a Will Month. You and you quoted it exactly right. Absolutely, thank you. There was a movement several years ago called Leave a Legacy. Now, you mentioned legacy before. I, I don't happen to like the word legacy. I mean, I, I, I use it in some marketing, but it's, a, it's never a focus. You know, I might put it once in a letter or something or an email. Um, because the folks that, that we're talking to aren't thinking of their legacy. The legacy is more, the legacies more are pondered by the likes of, Bill Gates and and um, mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos, yeah. you know, these folks that we're talking to, wings they, of a hospital, wings, yeah, yeah. Th- th- these folks we're talking to, you know, they might have money to 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 give to to build the wing of a hospital, but they they still don't think of themselves as as having a legacy, as being philanthropists. They're just folks who love a nonprofit. They just they just give, you know. You know, they don't even think of themselves as donors necessarily, although we always, you know, we're always calling them that. They just, mm-hmm. They're just supporting a, a, a mission that they love. They're supporting people and, and work that they love. So even, even wealthy folks, you know, millionaires, I, I've never worked with, well, no, that's not true. I did work with one very high net worth couple, you know, on $25 million trust package of multiple trusts. Um so that that couple might have thought of a legacy, but that's the first, the only one that comes to mind over a 24-year career so far in planned giving. Folks just don't think of themselves as leaving a legacy. So I didn't love the leave a legacy uh, mm-hmm. framework, brand, yeah. but that's what it was called. It was, it was exclusionary ago, in your mind, yeah. It was at least 10 years ago, I think, a push among nonprofits for gifts by will. Uh, so of, of course, I I love the the principle I just didn't, I didn't love the brand that they came up with. Um, that's really been the only mainstream, you know, large, large scale, I guess I should say, large scale effort that I've seen around wills. Uh, but I love that you're thinking that way. I mean, I am the evangelist, so maybe I have, a, maybe I have an obligation to create a movement. Well, if you, if you do uh, put together a day, a movement, uh, a push, you know, count us, count us among the, the willing to help. Uh, because I think I think you're absolutely onto it. You're absolutely onto it. And, you know, getting back to this like wealth transfer, uh, I think there, there should be a thought to the, the social impact 
the world you're leaving behind, not just in direct send the money onto my, um, onto my offspring and family, but into the larger family. Yeah, I think there's something there. I think you're in the right place uh, on this. Yeah, I, I wish you a ton of success. Oh, and thank you. Uh, is there anything before we move into rapid fire that we haven't covered that you just want to touch on? I want folks to be talking about planned giving. If they have individual donors who are 55 and over and they've been in existence for more than five years, don't discount planned giving. Don't, don't minimize the impact planned giving can have for your organization. I mean, George, you said it, you know, a couple of organizations that are surviving on planned gifts. Yeah, they can, they can, they can be in the millions. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's you not a black box. It's not, it's not complicated when you're doing it right. And I teach folks how to do it right. Not only in the accelerator, but, you know, webinars, podcasts, my blog. Um, don't be intimidated. Don't be intimidated by planned giving. Get started. All righty. With that, let's move into rapid fire. Please keep your responses let's go. Let's go. to around 30 seconds. Here we go. What is one tech tool or website that you have started using in the last year? Well, Planned Giving Accelerator, I created. So I've started using that and lots of other folks have joined me. But I would say that's not what you want. Slack, Slack. I'm a newbie in Slack. My social manager has uh, pointed out to me that there are spaces where I can answer questions for folks. Maybe not necessarily devoted to planned giving, but maybe there will be a, a channel where there's that's devoted to planned giving coming up. So I'm new to Slack. What is one tech issue you're currently battling with? Yeah, not so much a tech issue, but a data issue. Uh, I'd like to learn more about why folks join my planned giving accelerator and why some folks don't. So I've engaged a market research firm. Uh, it's it's worth the money to to find out uh, answers to questions that uh, I can't answer on my own, uh, you know, objectively. What is coming in the next year that has you the most excited? Year two of Plan Giving Accelerator? No, sorry. Um, let's see. Now, has me the most excited. I, I would say, you know, Plan Giving growth. I, I love talking to new nonprofits. I love empowering folks, getting emails back that say, you know, I listened to your webinar. And we, we, we started having conversations and we haven't gotten any gifts yet, but we started having conversations and you're right. You know, it's easy. It's not about death. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's started. We're getting up. Yep. I used the word. I used the seven. I gave you some deference. I gave you deference that time. I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to throw you one, um, you know, folks saying, you know, like you've empowered me. That's, I look forward to that in the, in the next year and the years after. Talk about a mistake that you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things now. I hired a PR agency, fancy one in New York City, 40th floor of a office tower on 6th Ave near uh, near Midtown. I was in Midtown and they had the big binder and they rolled it out with all the all the press. They had pictures of their clients on the Today Show set. Right. And. And with op-eds in the New York Times and quotes in the Wall Street Journal, and I bought into it, and I call that my three-month experiment. It was an experiment in ego. It was a disaster. I spent a lot of money. I I was not on the Today Show, nor was I quoted in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. I have been since with much smarter strategies, but I unwisely invested in, you could even say stupidly, 
but I would be too hard on myself. I unwisely invested in expensive Midtown Manhattan PR that did very, very little, precious little to help my business. Do you believe nonprofits can successfully go out of business? That's an ugly future. We're talking about planned gifts to, to prevent that from happening, right? So that's the planned gifts, uh, that's to prevent that, that ugly eventuality. Now, I hate to think of it. I hate to think of it. I, I, I'd rather see a, an association, a merger, a joint venture, before I saw just flat out the mission ceases. I, I hate, I, I don't like that. To put you in a hot tub time machine back to the beginning of your work, what advice would you give yourself? Do more networking. Early early days, uh, not only did I spend money on that three-month experiment, but I used to spend money on advertising uh, in a first incarnation of a business, which was helping lawyers leave the law because I knew how unhappy I was, and I knew that I was not the only one. So that was a that was a first business. And I wasted a lot of money on advertising. So I would teach myself, I would tell myself 25 years ago to spend more time networking, building relationships, not buying display ads and waiting for a phone to ring. What is something that you think your organization should stop doing? Listening to me. Hmm. Facebook. There's this little site called Facebook. You may have heard of it. The Facebook? It's enormously frustrating. Uh, As the the organic reach has plummeted and the only alternative for getting reach is to pay for ads. I don't know if we're going to cease Facebook, but we might cut back on Facebook. If I were to give you a magical wand to wave across the social impact sector, what would it do? It would demystify planned giving for all nonprofits that are over five years in existence and have donors who are 55 or 60 and over. How did you get started in the social impact space? I hated practicing law. And uh, just go into a little more detail on that. So my very first business was the one I was just talking about. My very first business was career consulting for lawyers who want to leave the law. And that business did so-so as I was alluding to, because I spent money on advertising and display ads and waited for the phone to ring. And I was not a, a, a relationship builder. I was not a networker at all. Uh, so since it only did so-so, I wrapped it up. And that's when I re-engineered myself into uh, planned giving. And I worked as a director of planned giving for two nonprofits. What advice did your parents give you that you either followed or didn't? My parents taught me that the world is much bigger than me. And so I work to give back. That's why I support nonprofits. That's why I worked in nonprofits. That's why I now support them around planned giving. Uh, that's, that's the biggest lesson my parents taught me, that I'm not the center of the universe. What advice would you give college grads currently looking to enter the social impact sector? Join us. Join us. If you have passion, we can teach you what the skills you need. Your college career has, has helped you. I don't care whether that's a two-year degree or a four-year degree or a professional degree beyond that. You know, I went to law school. We can teach you what you need to know. If there's a mission, 
that you love that is changing the world and you want to see it happen faster, then you have an obligation to join us. And I hope you will. On that note, how do people find you? How do people help you, Tony? I'm at TonyMartinetti.com. You can listen to my podcast, Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. It's the number one podcast for nonprofits. We just had the 11th anniversary and 550th show in July. So all the info about the podcast is at TonyMartinetti.com and PlannedGivingAccelerator.com. It's a membership community. Join me. I will teach you everything I know about starting your planned giving program step by step. The next class starts in January 2021. Tony, thank you so much for the work you're doing. I hope you succeed in your mission because if you succeed, it means many nonprofits will as well. Uh, in addition to making sure that you know planned gifts become expected, understood that it's part of this transition that we're all going to make someday. And uh, I wish you success. Thank you for your work, Tony. George, thank you. Thank you for shouting me out that way. And and thanks for having me as a guest. Real pleasure. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com slash university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 